I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. As schools try to determine how best to help students, the challenges, it seems, are everywhere. Health, safety, technology, food security, personal growth, and of course, learning, which is what makes understanding EL Education's approach so useful. EL Education guides a network of over 150 public schools in more than 30 states, helping build schools in low-income communities that send all graduates to college through high student achievement, character, and citizenship, while also building teacher capacity through professional coaching, resources, and open-source curriculum. But how does it work? And in particular, during the pandemic, how are the program's fundamentals helping students, parents, teachers, and administrators maintain learning and growing? To learn more, we spoke with Ron Berger and Lena Cox. Ron is Chief Academic Officer for EL Education, and Lena is Principal at Capital City Public Charter Middle School in Washington, D.C. As you'll hear in this part one of our two-part conversation, a linchpin to EL's success is something called CREW, Robust advisories that form human connections, and the connections in EL schools form a community. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. If you like our 180 conversations, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Ron Berger and Lena Cox. Ron, Lena, thank you for joining me. I appreciate both of your time. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us, Chris. So I'm almost afraid to ask the question. And Ron, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. How's school going this fall? Well, it's the most challenging year. I've been in education 45 years. I've never experienced anything like this. Um, so we work with schools in almost every state. And even within states, everything is different. I mean, some schools are fully virtual, some schools are hybrid, some schools are fully in-person. And in every single case, it's hard. It's, it's hard for teachers and hard for kids. And so I, I feel like teachers are being heroic, principals are being heroic, parents are being heroic. I mean, people are being their best selves, but it's really hard. What's the patience level? Does it depend on, on the situations? I've never seen a time in America when the inequities in education are more stark. Hmm. And so, I mean, you are probably aware, Chris, that in some families, it's just the parent is home working, and so she can't be watching her three kids while they're in virtual school. But that's the easiest of the problems, I think. We work with districts and schools all over the country where many of the kids don't have any internet access in their home, don't have any devices in their home where they may not even have space where they can be quiet in their home. They may not have enough food. They were counting on schools for their food um, it, and for their emotional sustenance. I mean, for some kids, school is the safest place in their life, emotionally and physically. And so it's a real wide range. But I would say it's, it's made really stark for us, Chris, how much we need to work as a nation to make sure things are more equitable. Lena, in your school, is what Ron is describing, um, does that ring true to you? What, what's life like in your school this fall? Um, you know, it's interesting because I've definitely learned that question around, like, how's the school year, how's school going, um, has really become subjective um, mm. by the day, the hour, <laughs> the minute. 
Um, we are, we're pushing through, you know, we are extremely resilient. We're creative. We love our work. We love our students and our families. Um, but we're exhausted. We are, um, fully virtual. We're, we're 100% distance learning, um, through first semester. So we are in this mode, um, until the end of January. Um, and you know, we are trying our best to support our students academically, socially, um, checking in on their mental health, checking in on our families. None of our families were expected to purchase anything. So we have done two rounds of school supplies. Every student has a school issued laptop. Um, we gave out hotspots. So, you know, we are privileged in the sense that we have been able to offer our students what they need um, foundationally and but so much more of our work has been checking their needs in so many other ways and and beyond just engaging in class but are they okay like how how are they handling we are living through a global pandemic how are they handling that sometimes things can be going great and our expeditions are you know going well um, and then and then we have a, a family that might be in a crisis or we have um, a situation even with our own staff, a, a staff, you know, member might have gotten sick. So we're we're dealing with it. We're pushing through. We are leaning on each other. We're leaning on our EL education network and um, we're, we're going to make it. We're going to make it work. But, yeah, there has been a struggle. Ron, as I've seen video of some of the schools in action, and in particular, Lena's school. How do the schools transition to an all-virtual environment? I mean, you know, the video that I saw um, of Lena's school, the kids are engaged, and the the teachers are right there, and it's a video, so of course, everyone's happy and smiling and their best selves, but it, it, I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm just thinking, how in the world does this translate to a virtual environment? Wow, well, I can say, Chris, there's no school I'm more proud of in the country than Lena's school, Capital City, um, public charter school, and it's an amazing environment. There's a thousand kids from pre-kindergarten all the way to 12th grade, Every kid every year in 12th grade gets into college. It's as good as you can get for a school in my mind. And yet it, the virtual, virtual reality for them being remote is hard, just like it's hard for everyone. I can say one thing that's been really helpful is that all of our EL schools, and Capital City is a model for this, use a, an advisory structure called CREW, in which every student is in a small group of their peers that they meet with daily. And that crew is like their family at school. And that made the transition to remote learning very different because in a, in a traditional and typical high school or middle school, you might have hundreds or even thousands of kids that all of a sudden are not there. And who's going to find them? Like who's, who's in charge? Who is going to reach out and make sure every kid is okay? Yes. But in the EL schools, as soon as schools closed, crews gathered, like people found their crewmates, their crew leader found their crew. They made sure every kid was OK. And if there were kids who had no connectivity, now Lena School is actually fortunate. They, they were able to get connectivity to every kid. But we had many schools where that was not the case right away. They, they found kids through phones and through conference calls and 
crews found every kid to make sure, are you okay? Are you safe? Are you healthy? Do you need food? Do you need supplies? Like, how can we help you? And so the crew unit became sort of the family that looked after you. And also schools convened their staff crew so that we made sure our staff, okay, they have their own families to worry about. They have their own lives to worry about. And so having some social emotional structures like that, I mean, many schools have advisories that are very similar to what we call crew, was essential to making sure there was a structure through which people could look after each other. Landa, bring that to life for me. How, how did the crews come to life uh, in Capital City? So it might sound cliche, but it, that what Ron just said was so real for us. Like crew was hands down what allowed us to shift seamlessly to distance learning um, back in March. It's what we prioritized when we were putting together this emergency plan and schedule. So, you know, before I even thought about what assignments or how live classes were going to be set up or anything like that, my, uh, my immediate focus was how many times can we have crew and how can we ensure that it's happening multiple times during the week to check in um, on our students and our families. Um, you know, an uncertain time, like going into the start of a global pandemic, staying connected was the most important piece for us. We needed to know that our students and our families were okay, and they needed us as well. When I'm introducing it to new families, I describe it as this is your child's family away from home. You know, this is um, these are their crew sisters and brothers and their crew parent is, you know, their crew leader is their crew parent and all of that. And I've always meant it. Um, and our crews have always been close, but I, I noticed something just different, um, in the spring and just how much closer, um, our crews were just even one example in April, one of our sixth graders, um, lost her mother to COVID. Um, and the dad, the night that the mother passed away, the dad contacted the student's crew leader that same night to let him know. Um, and the next day, that student showed up for crew. We were shocked. No one obviously expected her to be there. Um, but she said that was where she knew that she could get what she needed at that moment. She felt safe and she wanted to be with her crewmates. And that crew connection is the exact reason that we prioritized it in the spring. And we still prioritize it now. We built our schedule around our crew. We start our day in crew by checking in. Um, and we end our day now with crew. And that's not how we normally, you know, normally have our how crew is normally scheduled when we're in person. But the idea of, you know, the simple piece of standing in the hallway, being at the front door when students walk in the building um, as just a regular, you know, hallway duty um, where you're reading faces and you're greeting students and all of that. We don't have that now. Students just show up on a Zoom link. And so we put crew first because that is that's the that teacher can read a student's face immediately when they turn on their camera on Zoom um, for us to see how that student is and gives us a chance to then check in with that student or to reach out to another teacher or to an administrator and say something didn't seem right. Let's check in on that family. Um, and so, you know, it's been such a priority for us with our students. And then on the flip side. Um, you know, our staff crew was what held us together in the spring as well. Like I, I'm always very honest and very vulnerable with my staff about the things that I don't know. 
Um, and I can't tell you how many times I said, I have no idea to just different things that would come up in the spring. I have never led a school through a global pandemic. Teachers have never taught during a global pandemic. And so when after those first two weeks, when we were first closed and it was um, announced that we were not, you know, we weren't returning <clears throat> that first staff meeting that I had on my first virtual staff meeting, I opened it um, with the word grace. And I, you know, I just said, we have to have grace for each other and with each other um, as a crew. Um, we had to refocus on teacher well-being. I have two small children, two elementary school children of my own. Um, and I always describe it as I'm running a homeschool for my own two children while running a school from home. <laughs> and, you know, that was the case for so many of our teachers and staff. And it was just really critical for me as a school leader to support them to sustain their wellness and their work-life balance um, and making sure that our virtual environment was was healthy and positive. We had to really be by full definition of crew. We had to be a crew for each other. How much of what you're doing now this fall is based on what you learned last spring and how much is because you're just following your philosophy? It's a blend of both. So we made the decision um, in the late spring, early summer that we were going to begin the year. We were actually the first school in the district to announce we were going to begin the year um, in distance learning. And part of that was because we knew that in order to live up to our philosophy as a school in EL education, we knew the, um, the work that we would have to do over the summer um, to plan for as best a distance learning EL education program, you know, as we could. We had every stakeholder possible voice at the table. We were holding family town halls to hear from our parents what's working, what's not, what do you need, what can we do more of. We did student surveys and met with student focus groups. Um, asking them the same things like you're, you're going to be going into this grade next year. Like what, what are you looking forward to? What would you normally be looking forward to? And how might we be able to do that virtually to still give you some, you know, semblance of an experience of your middle school, of your middle school time? We, yes. um, met one on one with every teacher, um, to discuss what was working, what wasn't, um, what they needed what we could do over the summer to try and plan better for what they would be able, willing and able to help plan. So this is my 20th year as an educator, my ninth year as a principal, and it was like I was creating a brand new school. Um, hmm. And so we were, you know, we just had a lot of design teams over the summer, like looking at our core practices um, from EL education and thinking about how do you flip this? Like, how can we make this virtual? How do we do, um, you know, pa passage uh, our portfolio process? Like, how are we going to make this still? That's, some that's something that's so core to who we are as an example um, and something that we refuse to let go just because we're in distance learning. But what does that mean? Like, what is that going to look like, um, you know, through distance learning? And I one of the things that I, I tell my teachers this all the time, like I would not have been a successful um, distance learning teacher. Like they are better than me. Like my teachers are absolutely amazing. And just how creative they've been in trying to, you know, become experts on how to flip these initiatives that we do all of the time and how to make them virtual and getting used to online platforms and all of that. So it really 
was a blend of learning from the the spring and reflecting on that and then doing, you know, and making the adjustments, which that in and of itself is our philosophy with EL education. Like you try something, you reflect on it, you look at the data, you, you know, we really took ourselves through a process of what we ask our students to do with their, their own work in their ways of trying to develop, you know, high quality work. Ron, has this been in some way, maybe the ultimate test case for what you always believed crew was and could be how 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 has crew held up in your mind in this new reality well to build on lena's comments chris i think we have always been committed to crew as two things first of all it's a school culture of teamwork and courage and compassion throughout the whole school so it's, it's the spirit that you're not in this just for yourself, that school is a, a team sport. It's not an individual sport. It's not about each kid getting ahead herself or himself or their self. It's about everybody working together. And it's also this advisory structure, which in mm. elementary schools is like a morning meeting structure. And in, in middle and high schools, like Lena's setting, is a small advisory group. We've always felt like that was a cornerstone of what we believed school should be. But once the pandemic hit, we thought, it's not just that, it's essential. Every school actually has to have this. I mean, we came out with a book on crew that came out in the middle of this pandemic. We have 38 videos about how to do it, some of which are featuring Capital City. Uh, we have an online set, a uh, toolkit of free resources. Like We are advocating in every possible way with open free resources, how can we help other schools do more of this? Because... The need for care for each other, the need for community, the need for looking after each other is never been clearer to us. So if, if anything, it's just amplified our mission to help more educators have access to tools to do this more. Why was it important to put all of that together and to make those resources available to anyone? Well, they, we actually have been working on the book for three years. So it wasn't that we wrote it in the pandemic, but... When the pandemic hit, we, th we weren't even sure we could finish it because of how things shut down, but we felt like this is the time when it's most needed. So we accelerated our work to get it out in August. The book is just called We Are Crew, yeah. and it's a guide for schools that want to amplify their advisory programs or their morning meeting structure or build their staff culture in the way Lena and Karen and Belisha have done at, at Capital City to build a staff that works together. So it's, it's stories of best practices and models from our best schools about how to do that well. And um, we can't give away the books because it costs money to print them. But everything else connected to the book, all the resources, so all the online models of how it's done in schools are free. Um, all of our videos are free and accessible online. And we have professional development kits online also for free. Because we're just trying to get out resources to people in the country who realize now school culture really matters. And every kid needs to feel like he or she or they really belongs. And if a kid does not feel like they belong, they're not going to succeed in school. And by belong, I don't just mean that they're welcomed or that someone smiles at them when they enter the school. I mean that they feel valued for who they are, that their culture, their background, their racial identity, their sexual identity, their sexual orientation, 
their their cultural background, their primary language, their body type. Like kids have to feel like I'm okay here. People value me here. They believe in me here. They think I can do great things here. And that's very hard to establish in schools if kids feel anonymous in any way. So we need structures in every school where kids feel known and seen and heard and valued for who they are. We'll hear more about the mission to spread those resources in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about another podcast that I think you should check out called Notes from the Backpack. It's brought to you by National PTA and hosted by Helen Westmoreland and Lawanda Tony. Helen heads PTA's Center for Family Engagement and has a two-year-old daughter. Lawanda is PTA's Director of Communications and has a seven-year-old son. Together, in each episode of Notes from the Backpack, they invite an expert to the show and address a topic related to children's learning, development, and success in and out of school. This season, they're tackling questions we need to know the answers to. How do I choose online resources that will actually support my kids during school closures? How can I help my child get the assistance they need to thrive right now? And how do I talk with my kids about some of the bigger issues of 2020, like racial justice and the election? Notes from the Backpack has listeners in every state and in more than 55 countries. If you're not already listening, you should be. Check out Notes from the Backpack wherever you listen to podcasts or at notesfromthebackpack.com. Now back to our conversation. Ron, if I could quote you in something that you wrote in a preface to one of your other books, A Culture of Quality, you wrote that this paragraph that just struck me. My nurse is my former student. My plumber is my former student. The volunteer fire department members are my former students. The test scores they got in sixth grade no longer matter to me, but I care deeply about their commitment to quality, courage, and compassion. My life depends on them. And even if you don't live in a small town, this is true for you as well. Your life depends on the high standards and kindness of the people who take care of you and your community, all of whom are someone's former students. It's a good reminder about what really matters in education, end of your quote. Do you feel that even more now? Well, this is really truly my life, Chris. I mean, I taught in the town where I live, I taught for 25 years. And so everyone in my town basically is my former student. Mm. And it is true that the first responders in my town are my former students. And we had a crisis at my home where the first responders were my former students to help my wife. And... If you think, what are the qualities you want for, to come to your house to save someone you love, it's not gonna, you're not going to be worrying about their test scores in third grade, right? You're going to be wanting those people to be the kind of human beings who will save someone's life with great courage and compassion and be just freaking good at what they do. You want them to have high standards for their work. And so it is absolutely what I believe schools are for. It's not just for preparing kids for tests. It's for preparing them to be for life, to be great people and great citizens. And I think if, if for example, if you ask Lena about the learning expeditions, which is our structure in EL for deep thematic studies that kids lead, um, you'll find that, that the learning expeditions and the studies that kids do are other-oriented. They're, they're oriented toward contributing to their community. So I'll share one quick story. We have a school in New York City that as soon as the pandemic shut the school down, these middle school students, they were seventh graders, 
met in their crew and decided not how are we going to help ourselves, but how are we going to do good for our community during the pandemic? And they, they chose three projects. One was what's going to happen to the homeless people in our community during the pandemic. The second was what's going to happen to all the families who have people incarcerated in our community during the pandemic. And the third was what about all the people that are out of work in our community now and are not going to be able to pay their rent and might get evicted. And so the crew split into three teams to research how could each of those teams figure out ways to engage in advocacy in their community to help those constituents. So this idea that school is not getting you ready to get rich for the world. It's getting you ready to contribute to a better world. It's getting you ready to contribute to society in some positive way. And so even during the shutdown, that example of crew was like, how do we do some good for the world in our crew time? And I think the, the kinds of projects and expeditions that I've seen at Capital City are perfect examples of that, of kids being other-oriented in their work, of getting smart to do good for the world. Lena, uh, picking up on his lead, could you tell me about the learning expeditions at Capital City um, and the importance of project-based learning? Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, one of the things that I feel like happens when when you think of and specifically like right now even just thinking about middle school which I'm the middle school principal at Capital City um you know this is the age where we're teaching students to have a voice and learn to advocate for themselves and live in situations and um live in their communities and and try and fix problems within their community with uh a context a different type of historical context and um, kind of the academic side guiding that work. Um, and what was actually interesting, um, one of the things that I feel like we had to come to terms with was how COVID even laid bare so many inequities that were leading to devastating effects on our own community, um, which is majority Black, black and Latinx. Um, our community was being hard hit with families losing jobs and struggling in ways that we hadn't experienced before as a community. And then on top of that, we were also, we are also living in a racial epidemic. And so what does all of that mean for black and brown students? Um, what does it mean when the people who were dying of COVID looked more like them? Um, you know, how do you take that and engage them in that thinking and in that learning um, and give them ways to really understand that in a, in a different sense than just a, a book report or something like that. How do you um, teach students to fully grasp a concept like voting, for instance? Um, you know, how do you push that during during any year, but especially during an election year, during an election year where so many of the things that are essentially sitting on a ballot or sitting attached to a candidate's name have to do with your community and with people who look like you. And so, you know, in, in our fifth grade, our expedition is around learning um, the Bill of Rights and they're learning the Constitution and all of those pieces. And um, prior to COVID, you know, our fifth graders um, put together two years ago during interim um, elections, they were marching on a college campus 
surveying, polling and urging and making college students sign a pledge that they were going to get out to vote and be a voice for them since they couldn't vote. Last year, um, they did a voter registration drive for our seniors, our high school seniors. And so all of the seniors that were 18 or were turning 18, they sat they, they were trained in how to register um, uh, people to vote. And then they ran registration drives during um, during our seniors, uh, senior expedition classes, during our um, different like back to school nights and different parent events, they were registering voters. So instead of just talking about an election or talking about the importance of voting, they were given the responsibility. You might not be able to vote, but you surely can register some people. You can understand, you know, the importance of it. You can write um, and do videos. They've been doing videos this year because now we're virtual um, to really just push the word about getting out to vote. Um, another expedition, our eighth graders study the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and so they choose a right, they research that right, and then they design a prototype um, that will essentially fix uh, that right, violations of that right. Um, and they do their own version of a TED Talk um, to really talk through, you know, what what they've learned. And it's those skills and the, you know, the that explicit teaching, those critical thinking skills um, that we need young people to have. Those are skills that are being tested in real life situations and, you know, not just on a on a standardized test, but they're engaging with something beyond what's just in the classroom. That was part one of my conversation with Ron Berger and Lena Cox. My thanks to Ron and Lena for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.